Pastor Dave selected for us as our theme 1 Corinthians 16, 9, which was read for you. There's a connection here to our series in Ephesians that we're in the middle of because Paul writes this letter to Corinth from Ephesus. And at the end of the letter to the Corinthians, Paul says that he longs to spend time with them, significant time with them. He doesn't want to just pass through. He would love to winter with them, but he's delayed. And Paul tells us two reasons why he's delayed. In the first place, there's a wide door of ministry open. There is a huge opportunity for the gospel in Ephesus, which is keeping him from going to Corinth. And in the second place, there is vast gospel opposition, which is keeping him from going to Corinth, even though he desires to. And so he stays in Ephesus for opposition and for opportunity. Paul's ministry in Ephesus is recorded in Acts chapter 18 through 20. So I'd encourage you to open your Bibles to two places this morning, 1 Corinthians 16, but also keep something in Acts chapters 18, 19, and 20, because we're going to be going back and forth this morning. Paul's visits to Ephesus span three years, three different visits that total up to just over three years of ministry with this particular church in this particular city. So what can we learn from ministry in first century Ephesus to help us lean into opportunity and opposition against the gospel. I want us to walk through these three astounding years of gospel ministry in Ephesus and show us how God builds his church. There are principles and patterns in Paul's ministry in Ephesus that are on display that help us understand how God builds his church, how God works through his church how his deafening power mixes with ordinary faithfulness in Christian lives to evangelize the lost and to build up and edify the found. And specifically, what we'll see this morning is the Holy Spirit strengthen Christians to proclaim the gospel. Simply, the church speaking the word in the power of the Spirit. That's how God builds his church. So let me pray and let's jump right in. Father, we, we ask for a view of Christ that we have not seen before or a view of Christ that's refreshed in our hearts. We long to see his matchless worth. We long to see him high and lifted up. Holy Spirit, we depend on you each time we open up your word, whether it's alone in our home or together when we gather. And so we look to you now, we rely upon you, we depend upon you and ask that you would lift up Christ in our midst for those here this morning who have not yet submitted to him in faith, and for those of us who have, I pray that you would work, that you would help us to see him, that you would help us to see the hope for the nations that exists in the gospel. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The main idea this morning is that God strengthens us to pursue gospel opportunities and to withstand gospel opposition. Jesus predicted both gospel opportunity and gospel opposition. For example, the instructions that Jesus gave to the, to the disciples in Matthew chapter 10, where he basically says, guys, expect opposition to the gospel. Expect to be delivered over to courts. Expect to be flogged in synagogues and to be dragged before kings and governors for my sake. If the master, speaking of himself, is called Satan, then how much more will you be reviled and maligned for my name? 
But then he follows up with a promise, fear not, for the Father sees all. But right before this promise of gospel opposition is a staggering statement from Jesus about gospel opportunity. In Matthew 9, verse 37, Jesus says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Wide doors of ministry and vast adversaries in opposition run like train tracks before the church. This was true in first century Ephesus, and it's true for us now. So the question is, how do we fuel gospel urgency and the immovability of the church in the world? Three ordinary practices on display in Ephesus. And I'm going to take us through Ephesus three times, through this three-year ministry, three different times to help us to see each of these ordinary practices. So turn over to Acts chapter 18, verses 18 to 21. This is Paul's first of three visits to Ephesus, and it's a short one. He's only there for a brief period of time, but the pattern is established in this first brief visit. This is about 20 years after Christ's resurrection, during Paul's second missionary trip around the Roman Empire. Second missionary trip, first time in Ephesus. Now, the first thing we notice is that Paul works with a team of Christians. Very seldomly do we find Paul alone in ministry. And that's because it's nearly impossible for us to follow Jesus alone. Nearly impossible for us to do this alone. And the gospel's unifying power is on display in community. It helps us as we live together in community to showcase the unifying power of the gospel. And this is why Cherrydale longs to send workers, missionaries, in community. And we long for them to find a local church, or if they can't find a local church, then to help plant a local church. Paul and his team arrive in Ephesus, and they go directly to the Jewish synagogue. And in the synagogue, Paul begins to reason with the Jews. And we know from the broad pattern in Acts that what he's reasoning from are the Old Testament scriptures. And when he's asked to stay because they hear something that they appreciate, Paul declines. Paul knows that he's needed somewhere else, but he leaves his coworkers, Priscilla and Aquila, behind in Ephesus, and he moves on. And after Paul leaves this first brief visit, an Egyptian Christian named Apollos arrives in Ephesus. And Apollos is eloquent, and he's competent in the Scriptures, and he's been taught in the way of the Lord. And he taught accurately and boldly concerning Jesus, but he knew only of the baptism of John the Baptist. And so when Priscilla and Aquila, left by Paul, hear this and detect this in his teaching, they pull Apollos aside and they explain to him not only the baptism of John, but the baptism of Jesus. Now, that's Paul's first visit in Acts 18, 18 to 21. If you flip to Acts 19, we find Paul's second visit. This is the long one. He's here for three years. And Paul arrives in Ephesus now during the third missionary journey around the Roman Empire, but his second visit to Ephesus. And God's word is the focus of his ministry. Paul enters again into the synagogue for the second time, and he speaks boldly for three months about the kingdom of God. He's arguing and he's persuading people of Ephesus about the kingdom of God and its implications for the world. 
But opposition rises. Even as the gospel is spreading, opposition rises in the hearts of some. And there are certain Jews whose hearts are hardened by Paul's message, and they resist him, and they publicly slander the way, that is, the church, those who follow Christ. And in response, Paul pulls away from the synagogue and takes with him disciples, presumably existing ones from the time that he was there the first time and the time that Priscilla and Aquila have been teaching in Ephesus and perhaps new disciples as well. He takes them out of the synagogue and they move across the city to the hall of Tyrannus. And in the hall of Tyrannus, Paul hosts discussions about Christ. And he does this for two years. And the results are astounding. Luke, the historian, tells us that all the residents of Asia Minor hear the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, or Jews and Gentiles, that is, non-Jews. Now, to accomplish these results, Paul must have been a dynamic, charismatic, magnetic communicator. There's no way that the gospel could spread this far and wide without a charismatic speaker and proclaimer of God's truth. But if we flip all the way back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we read this from Paul, the same letter that we, that we have been discussing earlier. Paul writes, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you, Corinthians, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's Paul, not in Ephesus, but he's writing to Corinth about his ministry in Corinth. But I think it's safe to assume that Paul's practice in Ephesus was exactly the same. He's brilliantly educated. He's brilliantly well-educated, famously so. But he did not rely on rhetorical flourish or charismatic flair to sell the gospel. He spoke with conviction and passion. And his tone matched the somber nature of his message, which is sinners need to be forgiven. And his tone and his passion and his conviction matched the hopefulness of the content of his message that faith, that life can be found in Christ alone. The Spirit's power was at work in Paul's ordinary trust in this book, the Bible. Here's the third visit in Acts chapter 20. This is another brief visit. Paul eventually <clears throat> will leave Ephesus as he desired, and he makes his way back to Corinth, and he winters there. And then on his way to Jerusalem and ultimately on to Rome, Paul longs to stop again and encourage the church in Ephesus. But there's not time. He's in a rush to get to Jerusalem. So he calls the Ephesian elders to him and hears his message to them. He says this to the Ephesian elders. This is Acts chapter 20, verse 18. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks or Gentiles of repentance toward God 
and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. For I, verse 27, did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul exhausts himself for three years proclaiming the word of God. This is what he spends himself doing. This is what he exhausts himself over. I want you to know the word of the Lord because Paul trusts the word to evangelize the lost and to equip and disciple the found. He is confident in God's ability to grow his church through the ordinary proclamation of the word of God, not just publicly, but also house to house as he contends for the gospel. And this isn't merely about knowing information about the Bible. It's not about collecting Bible facts. It's about treasuring the Word of God and the God who wrote the Word to strengthen the church to withstand the coming opposition. Paul wants them to be persuaded of God's power in the Bible. They had to believe at the core of their being that God can and God will keep His promises. So practically, this is why our church invests energy and significant resources to get the Bible translated into the languages of unreached people groups. One of my favorite rooms in the Museum of the Bible is the Bible room, and they have different colors for where that particular language group, that linguistic group is in terms of its translation. Different colors for groups that have the Bible, groups that are in process, and groups that don't have the Bible. It's, a really, it's really stark and sobering to stand in that room and to look around the room and see how many people groups don't have the Bible in their own language. And this is long, difficult work, especially if there is no written language in that particular linguistic group and if there's no literacy among that particular linguistic group. Think about what's needed. A missionary needs to learn that language needs to write down that language, needs to teach that particular people group how to read their language, and then needs to translate the Bible into that language. But if the, Bible, if, the, if the church is built on the Word of God, then it's worth every hustle and sweat, every bit of it. This is why also the missionary task requires missionaries to become highly proficient in the language group in which they're serving. They must pro progress to a level of proficiency to speak, not just to preach the gospel, but to strengthen that church. Think about the amount of nuance, the amount of discussions that we have about the Bible. We need missionaries who are proficient, who can use the language of that people group to convince and to persuade in the power of the Spirit. If we trust that the Bible is the Word of God, then we stand upon it as our foundation and we invest resources and time to make sure that all nations have access to this book that we treasure. The second practice we see in Ephesus, rely on His Spirit. Because it doesn't matter how much word work we do, without the Spirit's power, it's in vain. So let's go back to the beginning of Paul's second visit. This is Acts chapter 19. This is the long three-year visit. Let's go back to the beginning. And what we see when Paul arrives in Ephesus for the second time is he meets some disciples of Jesus and asks them, have you received the Spirit? And they respond to him, we didn't even know there was a Spirit. 
And Paul said, well, then whose baptism were you baptized in? And they say, John's baptism, John the Baptist's baptism. And when Paul clarifies that it's the baptism of Jesus that's what's needed, they agree, and the Spirit descends on them. And when the Spirit descends on them in the beginning of Acts chapter 19, they speak in tongues and they prophesy. Exactly what happened at other foundational points in redemptive history. As we move from the old covenant to the new covenant. As the Spirit comes now and, and empowers and seals His people. So for example, if you go back all the way to Acts chapter 2, you don't need to turn there, but in Acts chapter 2 verse 4, the Holy Spirit comes upon the Jews in much the same way. Those present on the day of Pentecost hear these disciples and followers of Jesus speaking in known languages that these uneducated Galileans should not know. And there's a visible manifestation, an outward sign of the Holy Spirit's indwelling of God's people in a brand new way. And then in Acts chapter 8, the Spirit comes on the Samaritans. These are half Jews and half Gentiles. The Spirit comes upon the Gentiles, and though tongues are not specifically mentioned, the context suggests that that is the case. In the same way that we see in Acts chapter 2, we see it again in Acts chapter 8. And then in Acts chapter 10, verses 45 to 46, the Spirit this time comes upon the first group of Gentiles. And those present, those Jews present, hear the Gentiles now speaking in tongues, and what they say in response is, it's happening to the Gentiles in the same way that it happened to us Jews. Here's what the Holy Spirit is doing. His inward presence in these four scenarios is manifested and demonstrated with the same outward sign. And in that way, he's emphasizing a critical shift in how God relates to his people under this new covenant with Jesus. Jews Half-Jews and Gentiles are now part of one body, one building, one family, one bride, one church. And the Spirit seals and equips and guides and teaches and witnesses and sanctifies and helps the believer. In the same way, he's collecting a multi-nation group of people, one body, the church. But this isn't the only way <clears throat> that the Spirit works in Ephesus. We read of tremendous miracles taking place in verses 11 through 17 of Acts chapter 19. God performs extraordinary miracles through Paul. <clears throat> Evil spirits are fleeing from people and people are healed from diseases as they touch the garments that touch Paul's body. The Spirit uses these extraordinary miracles, these not normal miracles to validate the message that Paul proclaims. And this may help explain why miraculous activity now seems to be more common in pioneer settings where the gospel is beginning for the first time to impact a people group. But not only in those settings. In James 5, <clears throat> James writes that we should call on the elders if we're experiencing a sickness and to ask them to anoint us with oil and to pray for healing. So it's, it's good for the church to desire these things because God has power to heal. But because God has power to heal and invites us to ask, as he does in James chapter 5, that doesn't mean that we demand his healing because that's what happens in Acts chapter 19. Some itinerant, traveling Jewish exorcists learned this lesson the hard way. 
When they come across an oppressed man, having heard the miracles that are happening in Ephesus, they come and they attempt the same thing. And they say to this particular man who has an evil spirit living in him, we command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches to come out. And the spirit replies, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but I don't know you. And the, and the spirit causes the man to leap upon these exorcists and they run out of the house wounded and naked. But even in this, even in this failed attempt, God is at work because Luke tells us that fear spreads throughout Ephesus, that Jews and Gentiles are holding Jesus in high esteem as a result. <clears throat> but beyond these tremendous miracles, the Spirit is also guiding Paul. We see this throughout his ministry in Ephesus. For example, in verses 21 to 22 of Acts chapter 19, we're still in that three-year period, Paul is resolved in the Holy Spirit to go to Macedonia and Achaia before returning to Jerusalem and ultimately on to Rome. Paul senses the Spirit leading him, but not yet, because he also senses from the Spirit more work to be done in Asia. And so he sends Timothy and Erastus ahead of him. And this will happen again during Paul's brief third visit with just the elders of Ephesus, where he writes this in Acts 20, verse 22. Behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish the, my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. We see the Spirit guiding Paul in these scenarios. We see a sensitivity in Paul to pray and to depend on the Spirit. But perhaps the most astounding movement of the Spirit in Ephesus is the way that the Spirit converts sinners. This is from Cherrydale's Statement of Faith. The Spirit bears witness to the truth of the gospel in preaching and testimony. We believe as a church family that when the gospel is proclaimed, when it's shared by you with a coworker or a child, or when it's preached from this pulpit, that the Spirit bears witness to the truth of the gospel. The Spirit is saying, yes, that's true. That's right. And the Spirit is the agent in the new birth that He seals equips, guides, teaches, witnesses, sanctifies, and helps the believer. The Holy Spirit effectively confirms the truth of gospel preaching and evangelizing and is the agent or the cause of the new birth. And now sealed with the Holy Spirit, the new Christian begins to change as the Spirit works in his or her life. And this is what we see in the Christians in Ephesus as they turn from witchcraft to worship Jesus and as they turn from the worship of Artemis to the worship of Jesus. And as they do, they burn their magic books in the city square for all to see and they melt down their idols. And so Luke says in Acts 19.20, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily through the conversion of these ordinary people in Ephesus. And just as the word of the Lord blasts through the wide door of opportunity 
Opposition rises. A major disturbance unfolds in Ephesus over the way or over the church. And opposition erupts against the church. We've seen this the last couple of weeks. Demetrius, a silversmith, a maker of, of idols, pulls together the other tradesmen of Ephesus. And he says to them in Acts 19.25, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but all, in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence she whom all Asia and the world worship. Opposition to the gospel in Ephesus is not just human. It is deeply spiritual. As satanic forces resist Jesus, we see this in the worship of Artemis. And it's not just casual worship. This is their identity. And they export the worship of Artemis all over Asia Minor. Therefore, the church must pursue faithfulness, relying upon God's spirit, Jesus said in John 14 or 16 that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. We trust that the Spirit works through the ordinary ministry of the Word to soften hearts that are hard and resistant to the gospel and to open up eyes that are blind. The ministry in Ephesus is not powered by Paul it is not powered by the elders. It is not powered by the church in Ephesus. The ministry in Ephesus is powered by the Holy Spirit as that community gathers itself around God's word and devotes itself to it. The Holy Spirit is guiding and guaranteeing the work of the church. The Holy Spirit is saving and sanctifying sinners through faith. Here's the third practice. Commit to his people. The word, the spirit, and the people. When Paul leaves Ephesus, as we've seen after his first visit, he leaves Priscilla and Aquila behind. And then Apollos arrives and proclaims the word and strengthens the church. And then Priscilla and Aquila strengthen Apollos, who goes on from there to Corinth. During his second and longest visit to Ephesus, Paul withdraws from the synagogue with other disciples. He's not alone. And he goes to the hall of Tyrannus where he hosts discussions for two years. We just saw the powerful reaction as new Christians in Ephesus turned from their idols to worship Christ. When the upheaval in Ephesus turns into a riot in the amphitheater, two Macedonian Christians, traveling companions of Paul, Gaius and Aristarchus, are held hostage in the amphitheater as the crowd cries out for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. After the riot is stopped by the city clerk of Ephesus, Paul pauses to encourage the church, and then he departs ultimately for Corinth. And during his third visit to Ephesus, where he calls for the elders, we see that there are elders, that the church has been established and that elders have been raised up. And Paul says to the elders, be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock in Ephesus. The Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers. Shepherd the flock in Ephesus, which God purchased with his own blood. 
Watch out for savage wolves that will come among you, not sparing the flock in Ephesus. Men will rise up from your number and distort the truth to lure the disciples away. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for three years, I never stopped warning each one of you with tears. And now I commit to you, Paul says, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. And then Paul kneels and he prays with the elders in Ephesus. Make no mistake about it. The Ephesus ministry expanded far beyond Paul and far beyond the elders. The work of evangelizing the lost and discipling the found is a job for the whole church. Listen to Paul in Ephesians chapter 4. He gave the apostles and the prophets upon whom the whole church is built and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers. Jesus gave them to the church. For what purpose? Verse 12, so that they might equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. To equip the saints. So leaders in a local church are Christians who do the work of ministry and leaders who equip other Christians to do the work of ministry. And that work of ministry is the building up of the body of Christ. How long do we give ourselves to this work of ministry? Ephesians 4.13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We do this work of ministry, the church does, until the church grows up in fullness and maturity in the image of Christ. For what purpose? Why do we do this? Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Paul says to the church in Ephesus, there are false teachers and there are false doctrines. Build up the church so that you might together resist the winds of false teachers and false doctrine. Instead of being pushed about, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, speaking the Bible to one another, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Now, verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part of the body is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds up itself in love. The work of the ministry of the church is the speaking of the truth in love in the power of the Spirit. And it is not a work for leaders alone. It is a work for the body of Christ to do together. Every joint, every ligament, every body part working together for the strengthening and the maturing of the body. The work of the gospel is a work that we do together. Don't hang around a church. Commit to a church. Don't just hang around. Commit. Say that you want to be a part. You want to build up this body of Christ. If you don't have a local church and you're hanging around with us most weeks, I want to urge you to commit, to join us, to be accountable to a certain group of elders and a certain church family, to pursue the one another's with a particular church, a particular community of faith, to work cooperatively, to evangelize and to disciple. Don't settle for a kind of Christianity that's functioning as a Lone Ranger Christianity. 
Instead, commit to a church and live together as one body, one building, one flock, one family, one church. Opposition to the gospel in America has probably never been stiffer than it will be in our generation. So let me move from the broad discussion of the nations to our nation for a moment. Last Sunday's Washington Post featured a full two-page opinion piece by Kate Cohen. And I think it's helpful. It's entitled this, America doesn't need more God. America needs more atheists. Atheism, she says, is the belief that God doesn't exist. Kate Cohen argues that America will be better off without believers who build their lives on the Bible. She says that if we peel back the layers of discrimination against the LGBTQ plus community, you will find religion. And if you peel back the layers of control over women's bodies, you will find religion. And if you pull back the layers of abstinence-only, marriage-only education, you will find religion. And she continues. And she goes on to say that religious liberty itself is a threat to America as religious people use religious liberty to sidestep advances, advances in civil rights and human rights and public health. And it's used to perpetrate much of the discrimination that Americans face. Now, to respond respectfully to Kate Cohen, we have to acknowledge a few things. I think that she is partly right in her observation that sinful people have long used the Bible to justify wrongdoing. I think we need to cede that point. And we also need to acknowledge that atheists have long done evil in the name of atheism, but it doesn't matter. People have also pretended to be Christians and have done very wrong things. There are countless examples of outward religion masquerading as sincere faith in Christ, and that's a tragedy. This is the point that Paul makes in the second half of Ephesians that we're preaching through as a church family. Make sure that your life aligns with the gospel that you proclaim. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. So I think she's at least partly right in her observation. But Cohen is wrong that America or any nation will be better off without genuine, sincere followers of Jesus. As our country platforms individual expression, as that becomes the primary way that we think about self. This is about who I am, and I want to express to you who I am, and I want you to acknowledge who I am and come around me. And then, as our country centers sexual identity as the pinnacle of individual expression, as we make how we think about ourselves sexually as the point of the spear, we need, America needs a prophetic and loving church. Prophetic and loving. A church who proclaims God's truth about sin, but also proclaims God's offer of salvation. You see, amidst the vast opposition rising against Jesus in our generation is a wide door of gospel opportunity. The longings of our neighbors for life and for love and for hope are found in the gospel, along with the forgiveness that each of us needs. This experiment will fail 
This experiment that America is in will fail as it relates to individual expression. And real people will suffer as a result. And the opportunity for the gospel is to be there. To be there with the hope of the gospel. The hope that all of our neighbors and children so desperately need. We, more than anyone, should understand the image-bearing nature of human beings. And we should stand with our neighbors and pray and contend for the hope of the gospel. And a prophetic and loving church isn't just what America needs. To step back to the nations, a prophetic and loving church is what all nations need. God strengthens the church to pursue gospel opportunities and to withstand gospel opposition. Gospel opposition runs right alongside gospel opportunities like train tracks before the church. And history reveals that the church thrives spiritually when it is opposed. That the church thrives spiritually when it is opposed. That doesn't mean we long for opposition. It doesn't mean we pray for persecution. It does mean we don't need to fear it when it comes because we will thrive spiritually as we depend on the Lord, as we rely upon the gospel, and as we commit to one another. God's strengthening power is at work in the church, and that creates gospel urgency, and it creates a sense of immovability in the church. Here we stand on the hope of the gospel for you. God's strengthening power is at work such that not even the gates of hell will prevail against this stubborn, life-giving hope of the gospel. So what's a church to do in light of gospel opportunity and opposition? We give ourselves to the ordinary work of ministry. We depend on the Word. We rely on the Spirit, and we commit to a people. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the the work of the gospel in our midst. We were in need of mercy and you came. We were running from you and you came. And as your people, as recipients of grace, we stand before the world confident of your salvation, confident and full of conviction and passion that this is the hope. And I pray that you would make us a prophetic and loving church, not just for our neighbors, but among the nations. Would you help us to depend on your word, to rely on your spirit, and to commit to your people? Lord Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen.